You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 215, Sky Jatani and Living Life with God. My friends, this is what it's all about. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I, of course, am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, This is going to be a great episode. I cannot wait to just share it with you. On every uh, single episode, I like to just say thank you for downloading. And if you haven't had a chance to go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com, Sign up for our mailing list. We'd love it if you did that. And uh, maybe just share the show with a friend. We'd, we'd, that would be helpful to help get the word out. This, I almost can guarantee, is going to be one of those shows you're going to want to share. Okay, so today our guest, let's get right to it. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a consultant and an ordained minister. He's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Holy Post podcast. Um, they, if, you've, if you know, they blend... They call it astute cultural and theological insights, and I can definitely uh, attest to that. We'll uh, we'll get into it, I am sure. Uh, our guest is Sky Jatani. Sky, welcome to Halfway There. Thanks, Eric. I'm happy to be with you. <laughs> I am uh, really excited about this. Been been hoping to have a conversation with you for a long time. So I gave that kind of broad brush, uh, con- you know, introduction. Tell us a little more about kind of who you are and where God has you right now. Wow, who I am. <laughs> I am a 44-year-old suburbanite who lives outside Chicago. I am married with three teenage kids, and uh, I, all those details probably make me sound incredibly ordinary, which is true of very <laughs> that's much right. of my life. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians, so that's good. What part of Chicago are you in? I live in Wheaton. Okay. Great. So very close to Wheaton College. People may be familiar with that, although I have no official relationship with that school. I did not attend Wheaton. Um, don't work at Wheaton. I have many friends there. But yeah, I happen to be in the shadow of what they refer to as the evangelical Harvard. Yes. Yeah, I went to Trinity, actually. So we we spent seven years in Chicago. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I did seminary up there at, at the Divinity School. Oh, nice. Very well, good. It depends which Trinity you're talking about. Well, Trinity Evangelical Divinity Trinity. School, yeah. Trinity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were both there in Deerfield. Yes, in Deerfield. I spent uh, seven, well, we were there seven years. I did my undergrad in biblical studies, and then I did a year and a half at uh, TED's, and then I took a three-year break. That's a long story, and ended up out here in Denver to finish. So, Well, good. Yeah. yeah. I, I went to college in Ohio and came back. My wife and I got married. I went to TED's and um, never expected to, number one, come back to Chicago and number two, stay in Chicago. But I grew up here and I always thought I would leave. I have family all over the world. So it was just natural to think when you grow up, you go somewhere far away. And yet I'm living, oh gosh, two miles from the home I grew up in. And my kids are attending the high school my wife went to. So I feel weird as somebody who hasn't gone very far. Oh yeah. So you actually grew up in Chicago. Yeah. I grew up in Glen Ellen, which is right next to Wheaton. And uh, was born in Berwyn. I've, my mother is a Chicago native. My father came here in 1970. Um, yeah, so this is home. Gotcha. Okay. What was it like for you growing up in Chicago? What was that, uh, or kind of that su- suburban Chicago? What was what was the spiritual climate of your family? 
Oh goodness, that's a weird question. I despite <laughs> despite growing up very close to Wheaton, um, I had no, especially as a young kid, I had no real understanding of the evangelical bubble that I was so close to. Um, my mom is a Christian, and she raised my brother and I in a um, in a Baptist church. But my father is an immigrant from India from a Hindu family, even though he never really practiced Hinduism, he certainly wasn't a Christian. So he didn't attend church. So I had this, at the time I thought it was very weird, but I've come to realize it's a, it's a more common upbringing than I realized. There are a lot of second generation Asian American immigrants in, in the 1970s and 80s who were experiencing some of what I was as well, but I had my foot in two different worlds. So my, my mother being a white American, mostly Scandinavian, Christian and my father being a brown Indian Hindu immigrant, that just put me in different worlds all the time. So I was constantly navigating between the Baptist church of my mom's culture and the immigrant culture of my father. Um, at the time, at least where I was growing up, there weren't a lot of, of people of color in my community. It was mostly white kids in my, in my elementary school my brother and I were definitely different. There were a smattering of, of Asian, some African-Americans, but it was mostly white. And now having still been here 30, 40 years later, uh, it's kind of remarkable to see how much it's changed and mm. how diverse this community has become. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that gives you a little bit of my early background. But yeah, I, I did not, I, I had no idea about Wheaton College and and all the evangelical bubble that I was adjacent to. Yeah, yeah. So you, so did you grow up? It sounds like your family was sort of mixed religiously, uh, mm-hmm. and so you. Oh, how did that shape you? And did you? You said you were going to the Baptist church. So were you kind of? Did you get sort of that early, you know, VBS indoctrination kind of thing? Or you? Yeah, I did get some of that. Although you know, when you grow up in a home where there isn't a unified worldview. There isn't a unified set of values. It doesn't, I think, seep in as deeply to a kid when you only get it from one parent and not both of them. So that was a factor. And I, we had good relationships with, with uh, people at the church, kids at the church. I remember going to Awana. Um, I was involved in the Sunday school. Like we just did normal stuff. But by the time I reached middle school age and my older brother was in high school, I think my my mom had kind of given up fighting with us to go to church on Sunday morning. My dad wasn't going to church. It was hard for her to get us to go to church. So finally she said, Hey, it's up to you guys. If you want to come, you can come. If you don't, you don't. She just was tired of fighting that battle. Um, So I stopped any kind of church involvement by the time I was probably 12 years old. Um, at the same time, I had a younger brother who died in an accident when I was uh, in second grade. And I think that impacted my family deeply. And mm. any family is going to have a deep impact from that kind of loss. So when I was eight years old, seven, eight years old, my mom kind of became more zealous for her faith. That was a, a grief response I think she had to losing a child. My father responded by really throwing himself into his work much more to distract himself from some of the grief. And it, it it affected me at that age. Just I think when you're a young kid and you encounter death in in a, in a dramatic way, you just naturally look for um, an outlet for comfort and assurance. And it, it made it opened my mind much more to God and what do I think about all these things and um, 
so all those were kind of swirling around and I don't think it really hit home until I was in high school. Some of those questions, but I started asking those deeper questions probably younger than most kids do because of the diversity of my upbringing, because of the, the losses my family had experienced. Um, so yeah, it all kind of came to a head in high school. Oh yeah. Interesting. Okay. So it sounds like you had a lot of reasons to, to, be thinking deeply and questioning kind of even just like the nature of life and why, you know, God and what, what is out there uh, already. So it came to a head in high school. Like what was that? What happened? Uh, a couple of things happened when I was, I think I my sophomore year of high school, I had some friends who were involved in the church youth group and they were trying to get me to go and, I don't know why exactly, but I, I succumbed to their pressure and decided to go. And I think my motivation was to kind of cause trouble. Like I was going to go into this youth group and um, point out how ridiculous people were and their beliefs. And I, I was fortunate to have a very, very patient and tolerant youth pastor who put up with my crap. And my, when I say my crap, it wasn't like typical teenage, you know, misbehavior, smoking, drinking, doing all those kinds of rebellious things. It was much more... Um, I kind of play the devil's advocate in the youth group, almost literally like pointing out the hypocrisies I saw in the church or in, <laughs> in, in uh, certain teachings of scripture, whatever it might be. I just was that kid. Uh, that So that got me in, in the door again. Secondly, my older brother had gone off to college and he was still local here in Chicago, but he became a philosophy and political science major and an atheist and a pretty, uh, intelligent he's still smarter than i am but he and he's still an atheist but he and i would engage regularly um so while i was in high school he was in college i would actually go and sit in on some of his class yeah, so he started peppering me with questions about what did i really believe and have you read marx and i couldn't just look to my mother or my father for the answer because they didn't agree with one another and uh so that was going on at the time um and I, I, that those two things kind of converged. And throughout high school, I started reading the Bible again. I started reading the Quran. I started reading the Bhagavad Gita, which are the Hindu scriptures. I started reading Karl Marx and other philosophical works, which again, some people start doing that maybe in college. I was doing it a few years earlier because of these unique influences in my life. But throughout all of that, I found myself... Um, drawn more and more to the uniqueness of the message of Jesus, particularly what I found in the Gospels. And yet at the same time, to be frank, I didn't have a lot of respect for Christians. Mm. I just, I didn't see them as intelligent. I didn't see them as culturally engaged. I, I was already kind of recognizing some of the uh, the ridiculousness of the evangelical subculture. And so I just chafed at it. And I thought, well, I, I'm attracted to this gospel. I'm attracted to this Jesus, but I really don't want to be a part of that subculture that I was seeing as a teenager. Um, and so that was the tension that was growing in me for those years throughout high school. Yeah. That's interesting that, that you observed that early on. It sounds to me like you've always had a sort of I'm going to use the word sharp, right? A sharp eye for kind of the disparity between what we think we believe or we say we believe and how we actually act. Yeah, I, th I don't think that's um, because I'm blessed with some sort of super intelligence or something. I think it comes from the fact that even as a kid, I always had to navigate between multiple cultures. Yeah. 
almost like a missionary kid has to navigate between different cultures. I was doing that in my household every day with my parents and my extended families. And when you do that, I think it's almost like traveling overseas. When you go overseas, you begin to see your own culture a little bit differently, or you begin to recognize what might not be um, unique or what's shared. And the other thing I didn't share was before I graduated high school, I think I'd been to about 30 or 35 foreign countries. I traveled a lot. Oh, wow. And that's really due to my dad who dragged us all over the world. So all of those experiences, like when, when you go overseas, for example, and you see Christianity expressed in a very, very different way in, you know, South India or in Africa or in Europe, and you begin to realize that maybe the Christianity I'm seeing in the Western suburbs of Chicago isn't the only way to be a Christian, or maybe the Christianity I'm seeing in Italy and in Wheaton are more a reflection of their culture rather than an actual reading of the Bible. Like you you begin to see some of that stuff. Or when you go to India and you see people um, throwing money at a guru or bowing at an idol or reciting a a prayer because they want to get rich or they're launching a new business, you see that superstition. And then you come back home and you see the prayer of Jabez as a best-selling book in America. (laughs) And you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is just like the superstition (laughs) I saw of my Hindu relatives in Mumbai. Like you you begin to make those connections and realize that you, if you just hold, uh, if you swallow the entire American evangelical thing, it's not the Christianity Jesus taught. A lot of it is just American consumeristic superstition. So I think it was my cultural diversity that gave me that ability to see some of those gaps where another 17 or 18 year old teenager in the youth group without that cultural diversity, just it wasn't equipped to see that at the time. Right, right. Wow. American consumeristic superstition. That uh, That's a phrase I'm going to use for a long time. I like that. Um, <laughs> very, very good. So that, very interesting. Okay. So you have all these experiences that kind of shaped and allowed you to see things in ways that people who were just in the water, right? Fish in the water just couldn't see it. Very interesting. How did you, so I asked this question, um, did you have like a like a personal experience, like how to become personal for you. If you didn't have a moment, that's okay. But it's, I'm curious how that, how you made that decision to actually go, I'm going to follow Jesus. Yeah. Um, yes, I did. I did have moments and I, and I had, obviously it was a process as I've been articulating yeah. and I did feel myself very much drawn to the message of Jesus. I did see something very different in, in his message than from the other things I was reading and studying. Um, but I had that tension. I didn't, I did not like the subculture that I thought I had to buy into in order to be a follower of Jesus. That was number one. Number two, I didn't have many living or even any living examples of people who I thought were really brilliant people who were followers of Jesus. I didn't know them at the time. I was reading some of them like Lewis and Mm-hmm. and others, but I didn't have them in my life. There were godly people. There were wonderful godly people. I just didn't see them as kind of the intellectually rigorous thinkers that I thought there should be if this is if this is a true faith. I just hadn't been exposed to them yet. But the, the kind of tipping point for me uh, came in the summer when I was 18 years old between high school and college. I had definitely felt drawn more and more and more toward Christ, but knew that if I made a public decision to follow him and to be a Christian, there would be fallout from that decision, Um, particularly with my father. 
who was not a believer and who also had a very negative uh, perception of religion in general and certainly of American Christianity for reasons that I won't get into. Um, but that summer, I, I, without going into too much detail, I was on a, a road trip with a bunch of friends and I was down in Nashville or near Nashville. And we, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I had this complete stranger come up to me. I don't know who it was, African-American guy. Um, and he asked me what my name was and I told him and he had what he claimed was a, a word of prophecy for me or a word from the Lord. And I didn't have any kind of Pentecostal or charismatic yeah. background at all. I'd never really been exposed to that other than in a theor theoretical sense. Um, and, and, he, and what he said kind of just hit me like a lightning bolt. And the reason it hit me like a lightning bolt is because what was going on at the time I hadn't told anybody about, which was about three or four days before I went on this road trip, my father told me that he had cancer. My father's a physician. He's a, he's a really brilliant physician. And he told me he had cancer and it was quite serious. And in my juvenile mind at the time, I, the way I interpreted this whole scenario was I knew that God was after me. I knew that he wanted me and was drawing me to Christ. But the great barrier in my life at the time was my dad. And so I thought God's going to kill my dad. He's going to mm. remove him from the equation so that I don't have that barrier anymore. And I'll actually follow him. And this man who, who um, came up to me on the, out of the blue and, and shared this, it kind of had insight into what was going on in my life, despite the fact that nobody, I hadn't told anybody. And that's when it hit me like a lightning bolt, like, okay, this is real. Oh <laughs> like, wow! God is after me. And uh, as I was processing that event afterwards, it, my thought was whether my father lives or dies, he's going to die at some point. And I cannot live my life worried about his acceptance. And so he, my dad's still alive, right? He's 75 years old. So that was a long time. It was 25 years ago. Um, so he survived, but I made the decision going forward that regardless of what my dad thinks, I'm going to follow Christ. And I, a month and a half later, I left for college and um, started off my university experience at a state university. And um, story I've told before, I think it was second or third day on campus, a guy knocked on my door and I opened it and he was holding a baseball hat that was full of cash. And this was a kid who lived across the hall from me. And he said, are you in for tonight? And I was like, in for what? He said, we're hiring a stripper. Oh, no. And, and, I, and I had this moment where I realized, however, I, whatever I responded in that moment was going to probably determine my, my entire college experience. And for reasons I can't explain, and I said, no, I'm not in. And he didn't care. He just moved on to the next room to, to get more cash for the stripper. But that moment set me on a course my freshman year where I think by October, November, my freshman year, I was leading a Bible study with the guys in my hall. And that pushed me into four years of, of campus ministry, basically. And, and so all of that became possible because that summer I had had that confrontation with that guy in Nashville who had this word for me that put, kind of tipped it in that, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm going to do what, what God's calling me to do rather than worry about how my dad's going to react. Yeah. It's funny that that struck you, his words struck you, even though you didn't have a ca category for that, right? Like, it's funny when you have that kind of personal experience, you read, we read about this in scripture all over the place, right? But then when you have one, it's like, oh yeah, oh, okay. It must be real. Yeah. 
and, and to be fair, that only really had the effect it had because of the three you, years leading up to yeah, it. Yeah, you were thinking about it already. Of all my wrestling and reading and, and even praying. I was praying actively at the time, like, okay, God, if you're real, you need to show yourself. I, so I was an honest seeker. Um, but the, the things that were holding me back were stronger than the things pulling me forward until that encounter in Nashville, which, like I said, tipped it in for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Good story. Okay. So it sounds like you got involved in ministry maybe almost right away there. That cause that was your thing. Did you always wanted to want to go into ministry or become a, a oh, pastor? Heck no. <laughs> I still don't want to be in ministry. <laughs> okay. No, 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 not at all. Um in fact, some of my relatives are shocked. They're still shocked that I'm doing what I'm doing because they knowing me from the time I was a kid, just never in a million years would have expected me to go this direction. I didn't expect to go in this direction. Um, but I ended up majoring as an undergrad in history and comparative religion. And part of me was mm-hmm. uh, interested in law and, and going to law school. The religion component to that double major was more just because of my own interests. And I figured, gosh, I'd read a lot of this stuff as a high school student already. So I was halfway there. Why not add it in as a, <laughs> as a major. Um, but I got very involved with Campus Crusade uh, at my school and had a, a number of um, wonderful mentors. And re- through them, I, you know, realizing that I had certain qualities and, and gifts that were more conducive to a ministry vocation. And, and when you graduate with history and comparative religion, there isn't like a bazillion people <laughs> knocking on your door to hire right. you. So grad school was probably in my future. It was just a matter of what. Am I going to law school? Am I going to go get an MBA? Am I going to go to seminary? Um, and so it, it eventually, obviously, I went to seminary, which became a, um, a conflict point between me and my father, for sure. That That's another interesting story we could get into later. Um, but no, I, I did not by any means want to go into ministry. And And Again, it was one of those decisions that I knew if I made it, there was going to be a cost. There were there were no benefits to me going into ministry. I know some of my friends and peers who have like ministry heritage in their families, and you know, for them to choose to be a, a minister or missionary, something that's like celebrated in their community, that was not the case with me at all. It was seen as an aberration and bizarre. So it it, it was um, not something that I naturally moved into. Well, how'd you how'd you get there anyway? Uh, well, part of it was I, I knew I had to go to grad school for something. Uh-huh. So that was, uh, it was one of the options. Um, I did not know if I was going to go into pastoral ministry or something else. I just realized this is an area I enjoyed. I like studying it. I seem to have certain proclivities and gifts in this area. I mentored younger men when I was a college student. I taught more frequently as a college student. Campus Crusade was asking me to travel overseas to do teaching stuff for them. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, I, this seems to be something that I do well and people are responding well to. So maybe I should develop those, those, um, um, capacities and gifts more, maybe seminary is the right thing to do. And honestly, I, there was a, uh, I had a mentor when I was an undergrad who was not a typical campus crusade staff person. He, mm. I would call him more of a mystic. And, and Campus Crusader crew, as they're known now, tends to attract more activist Christians, right? Evangelists and missionaries and 
and very extroverted type people. But he was a, a character who was more introverted, quiet, a deeper, quieter soul. And I was very attracted to him because I knew I needed those qualities and, and desired those qualities. And he really taught me how to pray. And so I spent meaningful time as an undergrad, just developing a deeper prayer life and a lot of time alone with the Lord and um, different forms of prayer. And it was really in those times that I sensed a calling into ministry. I didn't know what that meant, though. I don't know if that meant pastoral ministry or something else. So I was like, okay, let's just go to seminary and figure this out. But when I came home from college and told my parents that this is what I wanted to do, um, my mom was quietly supportive because she, of course, was a believer. But my dad was like, "What on earth are you talking? This is this is crazy talk. You cannot, you can't do this." And and he and I battled it out for months about whether or not I would go to. I also told him I wanted to get married, and <laughs> and so it was all this like happening at once. Um, so my pattern was my dad and I would go out to dinner once a week, usually on a Wednesday night, and or maybe go to a movie, but often we'd go out to dinner at a restaurant and over dinner we would fight. We would argue about my future. <laughs> um, and it was good to do that in a public place so it couldn't get too nasty. There you go. But uh, over the course of months, we would argue about this and he's like, you know, you're brainwashing and you're crazy and you know, you don't know what you're doing and there's no way I'm going to support you in this. And it was just all over the board. And then one, one day after months of this, he said to me, if if you plan on getting married and going into ministry, how are you going to support a family? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> right. I, well, I'll figure it out as, as we go. And he said, if you knew that going in this direction would always put you in financial um, difficulties, would you still do it? And being young and naive, I was like, yeah, I would still do it because I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And then out of the blue, he said to me, okay, well, if I'm not, it's obvious I can't stop you from doing this because you're so set to do it. So here's the deal. He said, you can go to seminary. He said, I will pay for the whole thing. But you have to get your doctorate. Wow. And I'm like, wait a minute. You don't even agree with what I'm doing. Why are you paying for it? And why, why would you want me to get my PhD in it? And I like, I, it was just, it was head spinning how quickly he changed his mind on this. And I could not figure out. And honestly, my dad did pay for seminary wow. entirely for me. I walked out with zero debt, which is insane. Wow. Um, and I found out later that those months where I was battling with my dad about my future, he had been calling my older brother, who by that point had moved to California, my atheist older brother, and was venting to him about me. Like, you know, this guy's crazy and he wants to go into ministry and he's brainwashed and he believes all this Christianity crap. And and my older brother, the atheist, uh, told my dad through the course of these months, um, he's like, you know, I don't agree with Sky either in his views or his theology and all that sort of stuff, but I respect him because those months in high school, those years in high school where I was kind of growing into my faith and my brother was losing any sense of faith and being an atheist, we were walking through all that together. Yeah. And what he told my dad was, you may not agree with Sky. I don't agree with Sky, but I respect him and he's not crazy and he's not brainwashed and he, you know, you need to support him in this. So it was my atheist brother who convinced my dad to support me going into ministry. So anybody who's benefited from anything I've done in ministry or any book I've written or anything else, you can thank an atheist. Uh, oh, that's the best. I love that. Wow. That is astounding. So did you end up, you end up getting a PhD? 
No, I still don't have a PhD. Oh, really? I'm, I'm sure my dad is deeply disappointed in me. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of how my dad operates. He, in whatever he pursues, he needs to have like a certificate that says he's oh. reached the top level of it, whether it's music or gardening or medicine or whatever he does, he wants to be all the way, you know, certified. As, and so he kind of projected that onto me. I don't, maybe I'll get a, a doctorate at some point, but it's not in the plans right now. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. I was just curious if that, if that made it. Um, well, that's pretty great to come out of seminary with no data, but that was, that was really good. A huge gift. I'm curious. Um, and we don't have to, it, it's up to you, but, um, I'm really curious about that mentor in, in college, right. Who was kind of a mm-hmm. mystic. It sounds like that, that he sort of shaped you. Cause one of the things I see in your work and when I, when I read, um, you know, your books or with God daily, I, I see you have a very kingdom mindset, right? Like that I think is uncommon. I grew up in the evangelical bubble. So, you know, for me, I was, it was very Arminian end times. Yeah. Everybody's going to die kind of thing. Um, But uh, so for me, it's very refreshing to hear, but I'm curious if that maybe was planted in that season or, or how you would, how you would see that. Uh, Yeah. He certainly was a factor. I think, I benefited from not having as much baggage from the evangelical bubble growing up. Mm. I got some of it from my mom and her experience, but not a ton, not like people who really were immersed in that subculture. So I didn't have as much to deconstruct as other people. And then in those high school, college years, especially, um, I benefited from a broad exposure to Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. So my mentor was one of those things. Like he was, he was uh, reading things about Christian mysticism and practices of prayer that weren't just coming from, you know, the Christian bookstore. Right? He was reading deeper into church history and 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 then introducing me to that. My freshman year of college, I remember I took a, a philosophy class. Probably two hundred students in this class, big philosophy class, and again a secular university. And I had a a grad student teacher's assistant who was in charge of part of my cohort. And I think from some of the things I wrote in my papers, he started wondering if I may be a Christian. And I started wondering if he might be a Christian because to be a Christian in the philosophy department was like, uh, right. It was unheard of. It was a no, no. So he kind of flew below the radar and we had this clandestine meeting. It seems really weird, but we had this like meet me uptown on uh, such and such at this park bench at such and such a time. And so we sat down on this park bench together and we started talking and we're feeling each other out. Like you might be a Christian. I might be in certain after enough time we realized, okay, we're both Christians. <laughs> yeah. Like your spies. And then he handed me, he handed me my first Henry Nowen book. Ah, and that was my introduction to Henry Nowen. And obviously he's had a huge influence on my, and for those who don't know Nowen, he's a, a Roman Catholic priest, Dutch Roman Catholic priest who had kind of a mystical bent to him and his writings. So throughout college, I was encountering these people who were introducing me to other streams of Christian faith that went beyond consumeristic American evangelicalism. Uh, Of course, beyond that, I was a religion major, so I'm reading broadly there, traveling broadly. So I think I benefited from the combination of not having to deconstruct you know, 20 years in the subculture of American Christianity and being formed by all these diverse streams of Christian thought at a formative time of my life that contributed to, to what yes. I become. Yeah. I think that's so important. That for sure was, was part of my journey too, to go, okay, 
we got to now explore other other things. So I often say I went to college to learn to study the Bible. I went to seminary to learn how to pray, right? And that's it was in seminary where I had to go out and meet with a Jesuit or go out and, you know, read, you know, whatever, whatever it was, different kinds of stuff. So, uh, but that tr- the traditions and not being afraid of them is a really huge, a really huge piece. Yeah, I um, I think that's what separates historic evangelicalism from fundamentalism. Yeah, fundamentalism is, is always frightened of of outside influence and therefore isolates and you know has very strict boundaries on what you're allowed to engage. Whereas evangelicalism, at least historically, has drawn from the streams of Christian thought. And welcome to those. Uh, it's a big tent kind of approach to faith. That's changed, I think, in the last 20, 30 years, uh, where evangelicalism is looking a lot more like fundamentalism than it used to. But that wasn't my experience at all. Yeah, well, you guys had a great discussion of that on the Holy Post about um, the distinction between and you. And you did one of your, I saw one of your little uh, doodles. I don't know what you call them. That's what I, <laughs> but one of your yeah, drawings. Doodle, absolutely. Uh, that that kind of had those six tenets. I like copied it because I, I said, I have to just remember this because I think that's exactly right. Um, the difference between fundamentalism, fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And I don't want to be a fundamentalist. Like I believe in the fundamentals, but I'm not a fundamentalist. And so uh, there's, there's, there has to be a distinction. I think that's part of the tension that evangelicals are feeling right now as well is they've gotten so hung up on, I have to vote this way because of this issue instead of, Hey, let's think critically about the people and the issues and, and each one. Yeah. I, I think, labels have gotten so abused and redefined now that I think a a pretty good case could be made that most American evangelicals are not evangelicals. They're fundamentalists. Yes. Who calls themselves a fundamentalist anymore? It's a pejorative term. No one wants to be a fundamentalist. So we have, they've um, co-opted the label evangelical for themselves. And, but when you look at what they actually believe, how they engage culture, how they, the postures with which they engage the world, they look much more like fundamentalism than historic evangelicalism. So those labels, I don't pay much attention to the labels anymore because mm. I don't think we use them correctly. Yeah, I agree. I've been on a search for a better term, but I can't find one. I have uh, even yeah, like we all, we've all been looking. <laughs> I know it's not even like post evangelical is not, I don't know. I don't like that yet. So right. there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of people trying to figure that out. I absolutely love that distinction and that conversation it needs to be uh you know explored further and i love what you guys are doing to to do that um okay so you went to seminary and it sounds like i imagine all that was was shaping for you you had all these different influences have you ever had a dark night of the soul or a time when god felt far away spiritual desert oh certainly yeah uh regularly um I don't think you can be a sincere Christian for any significant length of time without, without that experience. Uh, a significant one for me was probably most of 2005 was, was pretty mm. dark. And I think sometimes you can attribute it to circumstances, right? You're just in an environment or a moment in your, in your life where circumstances are really dire and you have more difficulty experiencing God's presence. And that was the case for me in 2005. Two, two significant things were happening in my life at that time. Number one, my second child was born, my son, who was uh, about eight weeks premature. And basically the whole first year of his life was, was very sick. 
and mm. put just enormous stress on my wife and I and, and, and our household. And it just, we didn't know how that was going to go. So that was just enormously stressful. At the same time, my parents' marriage fell apart and they were in a divorce. And again, living in right close to them where I grew up, like I couldn't physically distance myself from that reality. And even though I was an you know, adult with my own family and married at the time, yep. it, it was surprising how much the breakup of your parents still affects you even as an adult. So that, that was the other big thing going on. Um, and then third, I was on staff at my church in a, a pastoral role. And that was just going very, very poorly at the time. And of course, being in pastoral ministry, I had no money to speak of. And we were sitting on uh, medical bills from my son that three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. So like, it was just an enormous mess financially, professionally, in my family, with my child, with, you know, it was just all of that buried on top of me in 2005. And it was definitely a season where you feel like where, where is God in this and my own communion with him really struggling. So that's, that's an easy one to talk about because there's external things you can point to to say, yeah. here's what caused it. But there've certainly been other seasons where you could look at the externals of my life and they all look completely normal and fine. But internally, yeah, there's a dryness, there's a weariness, there's um, a, a typical dark night. Yeah. So how'd you resolve that? Did it, how did, was it just the circumstances went away or did you like, I assume you wrestled with God and like figured out, you know? Yeah. I, I, you know, there comes a point where, and maybe my personality is, is, is um, more conducive to that. I'm not a highly emotive person. Yeah. Right. I'm, I think most who listen to my podcast You're thoughtful. realize that. Um, I'm not to say I don't have emotions, but they tend to run deep and quiet. So there comes a point where, I mean, scripture talks about perseverance. It's about perseverance. The book of Revelation is all about perseverance. Those who persevere, right? I will, I will give us, um, will become a pillar in the temple to our God. Like it's about persevering, not just through circumstances, but persevering through your own feelings and recognizing that what I may feel right now is not necessarily the truth. So I don't feel God's presence doesn't mean he isn't present. Because I don't feel his love doesn't mean he doesn't love me. Because I don't feel joyful or happy doesn't mean there isn't joyful things to reflect on. So for me, it became about perseverance. And you, when you persevere long enough and when and that the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to persevere, um, you find eventually your feelings catch up with the truth. One of the stories that illustrates that for me is in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail, right? They've been beaten to a pulp. They've been thrown into this jail cell. And it says that around midnight, they were singing hymns to God. Yeah. And this is implied a little bit, but I can't imagine they were feeling great. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Right? Circumstances were not good. They were physically beaten up. They probably felt like crap, but they're singing hymns to God. And I have to believe that their singing was not, uh, you know, a lot of evangelical American Christianity says that we sing out of the feelings in our soul, right? When we're joyful, we sing joyfully. And yet in much of Christian experience, we're not told to sing out of response, but we're told to sing out of discipline. 
right? Wow. It's one of the most com- common commands in the scriptures is to sing to the Lord. And I think for Paul and Silas in that moment, they were singing not because their hearts were joyful, but they were singing out of obedience. That It's an act that you do, that you choose to praise God and your heart will follow. And for me, that became the discipline. It was, it isn't that I feel joyful or I feel like singing or I feel like praising. I'm going to do it anyway. And when my mouth, when my mouth says those, says those words and, and praises God, eventually my heart catches up with what I'm doing. That's what a discipline is about. And that's what you see in the Old Testament with, you know, the practices of prayer and the Psalms and things like that. It, 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 we too often put our feelings first and expect obedience to follow our feelings. And I think what you see in a lot of scripture is you put obedience first and then the feelings follow the action. So for me, it just became the rhythms of perseverance and doing the things that I know God was calling me to do and giving time for my heart to catch up to my actions. And that's what happened. Yeah, that that is gold right there. That is so true and it's it's hard i've been talking with a, a friend about the way our culture puts emotions in the front right like we we right. put that way up front and then we let that lead everything else our desire our will our mind and he he would he would actually say we should put our desire up front and then that's a different story we can talk about that some other time but um uh anyway very interesting so uh i'm curious you started writing eventually like when did you start writing in middle school in middle school oh, you've been a writer forever yeah, I um, it's kind of funny. I mean, when I was a young kid, I mentioned the loss of my younger brother um, who died in an accident. And I was in second grade when that happened. And I ended up kind of just completely shutting down uh, emotionally, socially, academically. I ended up in special education in second grade because I just could not function. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't do I mean, I was just way, way behind in school. And I remember my dad who worked with me on my schoolwork and my spelling words and all that. And, and he was patient, but he was frustrated because I was just not a good student in any way at that age. And when I was in elementary school, if you would have predicted that I would be an author of multiple books, like it was, it was laughable, right? I was, I was in special education. I yeah. was not a good student. But by the time I was in middle school, I don't know what happened, but I, I started writing and I, I wrote and got really positive feedback from my, from my teachers. And that continued through high school. Um, I, I, I used to, I used to write papers for other people in college, right? Cause I could crank <laughs> them out super quick. Wow. Um, by the time I got to seminary, I knew that I was proficient at writing. I could communicate really well as a writer. And yet, I didn't have an outlet for that in a ministry setting at Ted's. You may have had to do this as well. We had to do, I forget what they called them. They were essentially like internships, but um, you know, ministry experiences, you know, partnering with some ministry. And I, and I went to my advisor and I said, I'd really like to do a ministry practicum. I mean, these are what they were called um, in writing. And he looked at me like, what are you talking? There's no ministry practicum in writing. What are you going to write? There's nothing out there. So that never happened. Not very non-traditional, getting, um, right? Like that's they they have the there's this kind of box, like no, you got to go to a church or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So I did a hospital chaplaincy thing, and I taught at churches and stuff, but there was no writing option for me. So I become a pastor at my church here in Wheaton, and I had a um, a friend of mine who was a member of our congregation, and she was an editor at Christianity Today. She actually was an editor for Today's Christian Woman, not exactly the. <laughs> 
the outlet for writing that I had expected. But <laughs> she had recommended me to the executives at CT as a younger pastor, someone they should talk to as a kind of advisor or get my input on or whatever. So that kind of opened the door for me and created some relational connections to Christianity Today. And then Marshall Shelley, who was the editor at yeah. Leadership Journal at the time, asked me if I would write some pieces for them. And I did. And I think he he um, validated my abilities. And, and that started the relationship growing from there. And that's how, and I jumped at it because, well, a little bit of background. There, I mentioned that there was a season where things at my church were not going well. There was a significant internal crisis at the church, a conflict going on that I was not directly involved in, but kind of derailed my ministry there and put everything on hold. And I was coming home every night to my wife and complaining and frustrated and should I stay at this church and why am I here and I can't do anything meaningful and um and my wife being wiser than me finally got tired of me complaining every day and said to me what do you want to do <laughs> yes and I said well goodness since since as long as I can remember I've always wanted to write but I've never had an opportunity and she said well genius <laughs> or what she probably said is well pastor why don't you pray about that? And I was like, oh, okay. So I did. And I, I, I started praying, Lord, if, if you want me to write, then I don't know how to, I have no opportunities to do that. Can you open a door, show me what I'm supposed to do? And I think it was within a week or two, I'm sitting at a retreat with all the vice presidents of Christianity today as one of three wow. invited guests to be, um, a voice as a younger pastor. Basically, they wanted to know why I don't read Christianity magazine <laughs> and how I could, what I would do to improve it. And out of that weekend retreat, I met Marshall Shelley. He invited me to start writing for Leadership Journal, and that's what launched everything that happened after that. From being hired at CT and the different roles that I've had there over the years to then getting connected to the Christian publishers and writing books, all that happened because my wife said, well, "Why don't you pray about it?" Wow. And See if the Lord wants you to do more writing. So it's always been a part of me, but I just never had an opportunity to do it until then. Yeah, very cool. And you ended up at Christianity Today for a while, didn't you? Yeah, quite a while. Um, I was there for 11 years, although I left three times. <laughs> okay. So I, I kind of, I quit three different times and it, back and forth with the church for a while, in and out of being independent versus CT. And then in 2015, I finally left like, Cut the cord entirely and have been um, independent since then. Very good. Very good. Okay. Well, there's so I'm, I bring up writing because um, I love your writing. So I don't mean to fanboy, but I just wanted, wanted you to hear that. Um, then there's three pieces in particular that I wanted to just mention and maybe talk about. So, uh, first of all, I think your book with um, mm -hmm. is probably should be required reading for every Christian everywhere, in my opinion. Um, thank you. Well, it, it is definitely my best selling book. So I'm, and I'm not um, saying that just to, just to flatter you. I really think I, I actually gave it to one of my friends, um, re recently, cause we were talking about this interview coming up and he said, I'd love to read that. And he said to me over the weekend, he goes, you know what? He has such, such a good way of putting things that I felt for years but never had the words for. So you put words to some things that people get, like they have it in the back of their mind and you just bring it out to the fore. And I love that idea of, Hey, what God wants for us is we're going to live with him, not for him, not over it, under it, all those, those, um, are those adverbs? I can't remember, um, that, that we, we put to it all the time. 
um, and you explain how that actually should work. This is the big theme of scripture, right? Like I will be their God. They will be my people. This is what God wants. And yet somehow we miss it entirely all the time. So I love that. How'd you come up with that idea? It emerged when, after I left my role at the church and I was working at Christianity Today, uh, I still, I, I still feel like I have a pastoral calling. And so I didn't feel like it had to be expressed by getting a paycheck from a church. And so I started connecting with Wheaton College students, um, just young people I knew socially who uh, kind of approached me about a more of a mentoring, informal mentoring relationship. And I accumulated this ragtag group of college students, all of whom were in some way or another struggling with their faith and we'd meet regularly. And as I accumulated that group and would meet one-on-one or collectively, I began to try to figure out how were they relating to God and what was their assumptions about their faith? And um, in my own head, just sort of as a pastoral diagnostic tool, I started categorizing them like, okay, well, you know, this student is really, is really mission oriented and they're all about for God and they want to change the world for God. And this, this student's very guilt oriented and shame driven and feels life under God. This, you know, so I had these different categories that was helpful to me in then helping these students think differently about their faith. And eventually I did a, um, I was invited to speak at Mars Hill out when Rob Bell was still there in Michigan. And I did a message about with essentially, like, what does it mean to really live with God? And I was trying to write another book at the time. I was working on a different idea and I have some partners who I, we all are writers and we, we share stuff. And I was just hitting a brick wall with this other writing idea. And I went and preached this message called with at Mars Hill. And I, and, and it just got this very strong response from people yeah. when, with that sermon. And I came back and told my writing friends about that. And they said, you know, that's really the book you should write. Put this other idea on the shelf because you're not getting any traction with it and write this one. And I thought, really? Like, I, I, in my mind, I thought, this is like Christianity 101. It this is, is not, this is not deep in, in a typical sense. It's like surface level, basic Christianity. And they're like, no, 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 you don't get it. People don't understand this. They need help getting this. And I'm like, really? So the book with, I mean, my first book, which was The Divine Commodity, took me probably 18 months to write. I wrote with in probably less than three months. Wow. I mean, it just flowed because it was so simple and easy and it was based on these categories that I had already been using in my own head with the college students. And, and so, um, but I, I, there's occasions when I have a sense after writing something that this, this is transformative, like this, not just transformative for the people who write it, but I realized this is going to change my ministry handful of times I've written something that's felt that way. And that book was definitely one of them. Like I know until I die, my core message is with yeah that that is what I am on this earth to say, and in one form or another, that's what I will be saying until I'm gone. And um, and that I just felt that when that book came out of me. Yeah, wow, that is incredible. I couldn't agree more. I I love that book. I've given it away. Like I said, I've loaned out my copy. I first this is actually how I found I uh, first discovered you. Um, I interviewed my friend, Laura Flanders, who was the, at the time, the head of the, uh, mentoring program at Denver seminary. And they use that book in their, in their mentoring, uh, program to kind of in, in, you know, put that Christianity one-on-one stuff that they're talking about in other things, right. In the mentoring program. But 
like here's the here it is all in one place so um that uh, that so she recommended it and and then that's kind of how i i discovered you but okay so that i love i'm Absolutely. grateful for that yeah i think it's i think it's fantastic um fr- friends if you don't have it if you haven't read with it's a really it's an easy read it's not you know it's it's it is something anybody can read and i think everybody should read there's a link in the show notes you guys can check that out if you use that link it does help me but uh just just so you know that um but I think everybody should read it. Okay, so the other one that I've wanted to talk to you about, you wrote a piece for Premier Christianity last year, um, which seems a little bit um, prophetic maybe now, but definitely I think is right on the nose of where the culture needs to go about uh, the case against sermon-centric Sundays, which I also have been sharing widely. I love what you say in there with the shift from information from the previous industrial age to the information age uh you kind of say hey people can get information everywhere maybe we need to rethink how we do the sermon how we do the sunday service yeah and obviously with the pandemic now hitting um everyone is essentially engaging church online or engaging sermon content online so I, i didn't obviously know that was coming when i wrote the piece uh, yeah. In a nutshell, I feel like the, the structure, the popular structure of Protestant Christianity and the Protestant church, we've inherited from a 500 year old model and the model today serves pastors more than it serves the people. Oh, yes. And, and our, our calling, our mission is to make disciples. It's to shape and form a people for God. And we every generation needs to look at what tools are available to us to accomplish that work and what is the right deployment of those tools and resources to best accomplish that work given our ministry environment that's what a missionary does right if they go overseas they they spend time understanding the culture the lay of the land the resources the way people operate and they figure out what's the right structure for engaging the gospel in this environment we just need to do that afresh in north america and i think if we did do that afresh it would be a really tough case to make that gathering hundreds or thousands of people on a Sunday morning in an expensive property to hear somebody lecture for 30 or 40 minutes is really the most effective way to make disciples. I don't think it is. The reason we still do it is because it's just the inertia of tradition and because it is what serves pastors and church leaders best. And we need to fundamentally rethink that. Yeah. Well, I love that you say in there as a pastor with, with, uh, teaching gifts and preaching gifts, right. That it's like, Oh, this is hard to admit. Right. Cause it's not really, you know, my gifts, but, and yet there's other forms that we can do that would actually make disciples better. And yeah, that, it's just, it's simply about taking, I mean, the typical church pours so many of its resources into the Sunday morning preaching act. Right. Yeah. From the property to the staffing to the children's ministries, everything in some way or another hangs off of the sermon. Right. It's about gathering people into that moment, into that space in order to hear somebody preach. And all I'm asking is, is that the best, most faithful allocation of the resources God has given us to form disciples? And the evidence, I think, is overwhelming that it isn't. And if we simply reallocate those resources in a different way, could we more effectively draw people into communion with Christ, into knowledge of the scriptures and into obedience? And I'm not prescribing the right way to do it. I think there's probably a hundred different ways to do it. I I just think we need to be open to that conversation and put it all on the table 
in order to be faithful. And in many places, there's an unwillingness to really do that because they're locked into this is yep. the way it's done. And if people aren't growing, if they're not being transformed, if they're not following Christ, it's their fault for not better engaging the system that I've created or that I've inherited. That's the problem. Oh, yeah. It's like a victim mentality almost, right? But right. But really, you're not using your gifts right. <laughs> like you're not using your gifts to their fullest to, to actually help make disciples. So the question is, for me, are you more committed to your form or to your mission of making disciples? And that's really what matters. Yeah. And I, I think to, simply a lot of people in ministry don't differentiate those two things. Right. They don't, don't realize that the form is not the same as the function. <laughs> and uh, I mean, some people get this obviously, but, and, and to be fair, uh, it's hard to really rethink a system when your paycheck depends on it. Yes. I, I, I forget who said it. There was a, a politician somewhere who said, um, it's really hard to get a man to um, to rethink. I oh, gosh, I wish I could pull out that quote, but it's it's hard to get somebody to think about something when their paycheck depends on not agreeing with it or something like that. Right. And unfortunately, the way we've structured ministry and the way we've compensated our pastors uh, puts them in a place where they are not they don't have the freedom to rethink a system when their livelihood depends on not rethinking it. Uh, I, I hopefully that changes over time. I think we're seeing a, an explosion of the number of bivocational ministers. I think more and more people are realizing that to be in ministry is more like an artistic vocation, where to be a musician or an artist means you're going to do it, but you're probably not going to get all the the remuneration you need from that in order to support a family. So you're going to be working at Starbucks in order to be the musician that you're called to be. Likewise, if you're going into ministry, you got to have a mindset that I'm not going to earn the money from ministry, I need to support my family. I'm going to have to be doing something else to do that. But that frees us to think more creatively about models and structures that actually will serve the people better rather than serving the staff. Right, right. A hundred percent. I think that is so true. And so, I, like I said, I've been sharing that article. I think it, it just, you, again, you clarified something for me. I was like, yes, that's what I've been trying to say. I went back in my journal last year and I found, so that season that I told you about when I was like between, when I, when I was at Trinity and I dropped out, it was three years. Uh, yeah. During that season, I was really wrestling with my calling and I found a, an entry where I said, I think God might have a non-traditional ministry for me. And then I spent the next 15 years trying to get into the church. <laughs> uh, and, and today I'm a podcaster. So I guess God, uh, God gets what he wants eventually. But um, anyway, so that, so I'm hundred percent on board. And I found, I found that article very validating. Actually, that was part of it, right? Like, Oh, this is, yes, I've been saying this. I've been thinking that and I'm glad I'm not the only one. Okay. So the other thing I want to talk about, thank you for all of that, by the way, uh, is your newest book, which I think is really cool. I saw that you also signed uh, to make a couple more of these. Uh, but what if Jesus was serious, which is a book of your doodles, right? And, and some uh, devotionals. So um, I didn't ask about how you started kind of drawing. Have you always been a drawer, a, do a doodler? I have <laughs> going back to elementary school, high school, that, yeah. like uh, sitting in classes and listening to lectures, I just process by doodling. So I've always done that. I never, ever, ever expected that that would become like a, a, a ministry tool. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. A couple of years ago, I, I had a little journal where I was doodling in them. And I, oh, 
this is kind of funny. I'm going to take a picture of this and put it up on my social media. And people liked it and started responding to it. And it, it's, I should have realized they would only because we've become such a visual society. Um, so then I started incorporating some of those doodles more regularly into my daily devotional that I write. And then I did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount that included these doodles. And that's what became the book. Yeah. Awesome. So, and you're going to do a couple more. So this one is what if Jesus was serious? Um, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, this is just a journey through, I think there's 70 some readings. They're each two or three pages and it just takes you through the Sermon on the Mount. Each one includes a doodle that illustrates the point. And I mean, the title kind of says it all. What if Jesus was serious? Like we don't tend to, as Christians, take the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount at face value. We don't take them seriously. And so the book is about what if we did and how would it transform our faith? How would it transform our mission? How would it transform the way that outsiders look at us if we actually took Jesus seriously? Um, it came out just recently. It only debuted in early June, but it sold very, very well. And I don't think it's because it is the most beautiful thing I've ever written. I, <laughs> I prefer with, honestly. Yeah. But it, it it says something that the marketplace really validates two-page chapters and doodles. <laughs> that seems to be what people want in a book. Um, and so because it did well, the publisher came back to me and said, would you be interested in doing a couple more? And so the next one, which will hopefully release next summer, will be about prayer. And a lot of the with kind of messaging of what does it mean to live with God yeah. and communion with him and what is prayer. I think the working title on that one is what if prayer really matters? Nice. And it will include the doodles as well. And then they wanted me to do a third book, which I haven't worked on at all yet. And don't even know what it'll be titled, but that one will be about the church. Nice. And... um you know, I've already pretty much guaranteed I will never, ever get hired by another church again because of <laughs> other books I've written and other things I've said, including, you know, that article you mentioned. Yes. The Sermon-Centric right. Sunday. So whatever that book is about the church, I think it's the intention would be to frame out what is what is a biblical vision of what it means to be a church rather than just the cultural vision of it and, and the community of, of people who love Christ and one another. So I don't know what that'll but it'll, they'll all follow the same format of short chapters and doodles. Yeah, I love it. So I've been using it a little bit as a devotional, you know, just in the morning reading. If I'm not reading um, your With God Daily devotional, which I, I have been the last couple of months. And so I'm just going to mention that, friends, if you, for, it's just a small donation, right? People can go ahead and, and get that. Um, but it is like a breath of fresh air. So if you, if the idea of with living with God is something that uh, resonates with you, you should definitely go and get it. You can, they can find it just at your website, which is skyjatani.com. Yeah, or if you can't spell that, it's just with God daily. With God daily.com. There you go. That's easier. Uh, perfect. Um, anyway, Sky, there's probably a lot of things like honestly, I, I would I resonate with a lot of what you're doing. I appreciate the conversation and your story. Is there anything you want to leave us with? what comes to mind is I just reflect on my own story from your questions. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people who say we should have like a five year, 10 year plan that we should have all, you know, take all these corporate uh, vision models and tools and employ them in our Christian communities and our personal lives. And if my story tells you anything, it's stop trying to predict what's going to happen. Like you don't know what twists and turns are going to occur. You don't know when God's going to use an atheist to send you into ministry or um, when a kid who's in special education ends up writing eight or nine books later in life. Like you just can't predict these things. So stop trying. 
and instead put your focus on your communion with God and, and let that be the centerpiece of your life rather than trying to plan things out for the future. Wow. Stop trying and let put your focus on God. That is great advice. Sky, again, I appreciate you being here. Uh, love what you're doing. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Eric. Always a pleasure. Mm-hmm.